all of you who are uh, guests this morning. This is the first time we've actually done church publicly. <laughs> and just getting accustomed to having guests here, so that's throwing us off. Again, my name is Dee, one of the pastors here. It's a privilege for me to take us into uh, God's Word, into the passage that was just read from Haggai. Um, quite a few years ago, we lived in town, Springfield, Illinois, and I purchased a home that was right downtown on Skerritt Street, real close to the railroad tracks. And um, it was a home that the previous owner had already split into two separate units. There was the downstairs area where we lived, and then there was an upstairs unit that had a separate entrance and staircase and gave an opportunity to have that upstairs rented out if we desired. And I thought that was a great deal. It was part of what made it feel like to me made it a really wise purchase, and I spent more money than I had on purchasing the home, and so I couldn't hire anybody to try and get that upstairs place the way I thought it ought to be, um, ready to rent out to a tenant. So on one particular day when I had a little extra time, a weekend in fact, I went upstairs with a sledgehammer and went after one of the walls that was between the um, living area and the hallway that opened into the kitchen. It's right at the top of the staircase that came um, upstairs, and I thought it would just kind of give it a far more open feel to it. Um, that was just a little bit before learning the term that I'd never heard before, supporting wall. It's a term that I think most people know, I just didn't know it. And you ought to know what it is, just in case you ever have a sledgehammer either, that you would know where not to use the sledgehammer. I discovered that there are some walls in homes that provide support of a beam or some type of structure on which the rafters above that ceiling rest or if there is another floor above it on which the joists find their strength at midpoint. And so, this was one of those walls that provided support for this beam that gave some strength to the rafters of the roof. Fortunately, I had not destroyed the wall or taken it all out. Something prompted me as I laid into that wall with my sledgehammer that it seemed a lot stronger than I anticipated it would be. Well, added to that strength was the fact that this was a plaster wall with all of the wood fairing strips that are behind plaster. And if you've never tried to take out plaster walls, it's just a mess. Dust everywhere. It doesn't come out easy, it doesn't come out in large chunks, and behind it are these wood fairing strips that you have to tear out as well. It's not a fun project, and I know we have some people here who do construction, and I apologize that I am such a poor representation of people who can do construction work well, but I felt like I had gone past the point of no return. The hole from the sledgehammer was large enough that it didn't seem like a simple patch, so my solution was to take out all of the plaster and fairing strips and these very important weight-bearing studs, wood things that went 
all the way through this wall. I use them to create nice see-through shelving between the living room, hallway, kitchen area, still attempting to open up this upstairs floor plan and maintain the integrity of this wall that was essential to the survival of my house on Scarrett Street. As you can imagine, what seemed like a relatively simple project multiplied exponentially. The dust created havoc with every nook and cranny of the upstairs area. The carpet now had strange holes in odd places and ceiling markings where I couldn't quite get the fairing strips out created patchwork up there. The shelving um, looked like it had been marked with nails all over the place because those fairing strips need to be anchored somewhere and they were anchored into my beautiful shelving studs that went up and down and this project went on and on and on. It was exhausting, discouraging, and there were numerous times where I just had to set all of my uh, meager equipment and attempts down and do the rest of life as the project sat there unrented for quite some time. There is, because of this, a great appreciation for the people to whom Haggai is written. They have returned from being in captivity to the land of promise with the charge to rebuild the temple. And the rebuilding of the temple was even more of a project than my little project. It had been destroyed, as we talked about last week. So for those of you who have been around, you know that we have been spending a little bit of time in uh, some of the more popular books out of Scripture, the ones where you spend a lot of time in your devotions, Joel, Habakkuk, and Haggai, the places where we've been, and I certainly don't think I can add much to all of the studies you've already done in those three books, but maybe just a small nugget or something here that might enhance some of the learning that's already taken place as you've dug into those books over and over and over and over again. So last week with Habakkuk, we tried to identify the timing of that book. And just a quick refresher, most likely it was written at a time at the end of Assyrian rule, but when the Babylonians were coming and taking power, they were held off by the Egyptians from the south for a period of time, but when the Egyptians got defeated at Carchemish, they retreated to Egypt, and the Babylonians took over the area. They invaded Jerusalem. Um, in about 598 B.C., and then they came back and destroyed Jerusalem in 586, and in the process took so many of the people into captivity. The city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. Well, this particular book, Haggai, is written quite a few years later. It, unlike Habakkuk, has very specific dates right in the book. There are four different declarations of when God's word spoke through the prophet Haggai. We are told that the first one comes 
in the second year of the reign of King Darius, the sixth month and the first day. Our reading in chapter 2 is this second oracle or message from God, and it takes place in the seventh month on the 21st day. And then there are two more that come at the end of the chapter, and they take place in the ninth month, in the 24th day, two on the same day. Very interesting. So, in a span that would correlate to our calendar, August to December of the year 420 B.C. So what's happening at this time in 420 B.C.? Given that about 66 years have passed since Jerusalem was destroyed, What's interesting, power has changed. The Babylonians are no longer in control. The Persians are now in charge. And the Persians have a very different approach to the people they conquer. We don't know all of the details, but it appears that the Babylonians, who like to take people into captivity and have them do the labor that they wanted them to do in captivity, The Persians, on the other hand, would often let the people of the areas they conquered live in their land, set up an economy within certain parameters, provide some governance of themselves with the belief that if they were able to take care of the land and produce crops, that these crops could be shared with the empire that if they prospered, that prosperity could be taxed to help with the empire. And if there were good relations with all of these outposts, when they needed to take their armies and go someplace else, they would have a place to station themselves on the way and be supported in their endeavors as they made their way to wherever the armies were going. In all likelihood, the Persians were expecting that they were, have to going to go, they were going to need to go up against Egypt. And so this area that was once known as Judah, the area that has at its heart Jerusalem, the city, King Cyrus made a declaration that would allow those who were in captivity to go back to their homeland in 538 B.C., 18 years before Haggai writes. You can read about this, if you'd like to know more of it, in another place in your Old Testament, in the book of Ezra. Chapters 1 through 6, you will see the declaration that comes from King Cyrus. You'll see what happens with the attempts to rebuild the temple. You'll see some of the discouragement that sets in. And 18 years after Cyrus allows them to go, his grandson, King Darius, is in charge. And it is under King Darius' reign that Haggai proclaims God's word to the people. The small little book that follows Haggai is Zechariah. These two prophets were contemporaries. Zechariah had this... um, kind of majestic, um, big-picture language when he spoke. Haggai is very different. Haggai is very practical, kind of down-to-earth. 
I mean, I would expect Haggai to say, if you have a sledgehammer in your hand, let me talk to you about what that means. It would be that kind of practical notion. Here's what we want you to do. But here's the context into which Haggai is speaking. The people, at least some of them, have been back as much as 18 years. The charge from Cyrus was, go back, build the temple. When they got there, they were discouraged. The stories that they had told while in captivity, the stories they had heard their parents and grandparents tell, spoke of this wonderful promised land, this place that God had promised and fulfilled God's promise. And if they ever had the chance to go back, oh, you wouldn't believe when we get to go back. Let me tell you the things that will happen when we get to return. Well, they got to return. And what they found was not particularly pretty. There was still rubble everywhere. There were some people who had been left behind that tried to make a life in a pretty destroyed economy and a devastated city, and not just Jerusalem, but other towns that were destroyed as well. And their efforts to build the temple, well, that's problematic in and of itself. There aren't nearly as many people to help with the work. There aren't nearly as many resources to build the temple. I mean, in Solomon's day, whew, the resources we had at our access, the people that joined in, but now it's just hard to get a wall three or four feet off the ground, much less build an entire edifice to look anything like it used to look. Eighteen years pass. Haggai sees the discouragement of the people, listens for the word of the Lord, and it comes. And Haggai makes some observations, or the Lord does through Haggai. I notice you've given a lot of attention to your own agenda. Have you ever thought about what my agenda is, says the Lord? I notice you're taking care of your own things, your own stuff. Have you given any thought to the things that I think need to be taken care of? You've probably noticed your crops don't yield what you expected. The food you have never seems to be enough. Have you ever thought that you've not paid attention to my ways, the ways that will produce blessing, abundance? My words are actually a lot softer than Haggai's. Haggai's pretty blunt, pretty forthright, or I should say the word of the Lord through Haggai is. We have to realize that what Haggai is calling for is something significant. Some of his message is directly to the leaders. I made mention of the fact that the Persians would allow some self-governance, and so some of the message is directly to Zerubbabel, the governor that's been put in place. And Joshua, the high priest, he is calling them to lead, to lead well, to challenge the people to step into God's calling. But 
I have to admit, this is an interesting place to be. Have you ever noticed that at times it feels like God's word contradicts itself? This is one of those places where as God says, you've made provisions for all of your own dwellings, what about the dwelling place for the Lord? What about the place where my spirit dwells? Are you going to continue to ignore it? Are you going to continue to not pay any attention to that? It is interesting that that word from God is, or at least it seems like, just the opposite to the word of the Lord to David. David, after he does so much of his conquering, speaks to God and says, God, I'm going to build you a house for you to dwell. I'm going to build you a house now that all of these other things have taken place. I don't know if you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's response to David is, when did I ever ask for a house? Is there anything that I've ever done that indicates that I was looking for some kind of permanent structure to dwell in? I dwell in a tent in the midst of the people. And as the people move, I move with the people. Interesting response to David. Almost as if God is saying, that's not what I'm asking for. And yet here in Haggai, God's response is, what about my house? Sometimes you have to sit for a while with those things that feel like they don't match up and ask, hmm, what's the difference in this moment? I'll tell you, I don't think it's because God needed a house. I don't think God needed a place to dwell as if God had been homeless for a while. I think, in fact, just the opposite is true. It's that the people needed to give their attention to building God's house. It's not what God needed, it's what the people needed because their thinking, their agenda, their priorities had become upside down. And one of the ways by which to refocus their attention and get their lives back in order was to say, give your attention to my agenda, to my priorities, and see if things don't begin to change in your life's journey. Is there any application for us to today? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of application for us today. I think we can speak about this place where we come to worship. We are the wonderful beneficiaries of some of you who have sacrificially given so that we can enjoy these facilities. Some of us have inherited that vision and that effort. And I think there is an appropriate question of how we give into this place. What does it mean to be obedient? What does it mean to bring our tithes, the 10% of all that God has entrusted to us, and it is all God's, 
It belongs to God. We are simply stewards, but to give back out of that abundance and then to give offerings, and offerings are that which is beyond the 10% giving that we give. And I've got to tell you, I don't think it's because God needs your money. I don't think it's because God's worrying where the next $5 is going to come from or the next $50,000. It is about what that does for us. It is about how it reprioritizes our thinking our understanding of God's presence and God's agenda and puts things in order so that God's work gets accomplished. But the unfolding of God's blessing on us, when those shift in priorities take place, begin to transform us from the inside out. I, I have some, and I appreciate this, I, I think it's, there's nothing inappropriate about it, but people who encourage me to let you know what our needs are. And there certainly are needs. We still owe $2.2 million on the facilities that we're using here. We have our larger worship sanctuary, the 1,800-seat auditorium that's often referred to as Brown Chapel, that's in need of um, refurbishment. There certainly are needs, but if we're driven by the needs, then we've missed what God's calling us to. We need to driven, be driven by our faithfulness, our desire that who we are expresses the character of God in all we do. And so I think much like Haggai, it is not so much that God needs us to repair a carpet that's torn. God's probably not going to lose any sleep over that. But it's that we need to show our commitment to God's agenda in our life, God's work in our life, God's calling in our life. So let me go to the last piece of this that I think is so incredibly important. The very last verse of the reading for this morning, I believe it's verse 9 of chapter 2, God promises that God will supply the silver and the gold for the rebuilding. God promises that what is about to take place will be bigger and better, will be greater than that which was before, that which was the former. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, I, I want to grab a hold of what God said to David and grab a hold of what Jesus promised and tie this breadth of Scripture together here. God is not so much interested in a physical edifice that somehow houses His Spirit. In fact, that's not what we're told in Scripture. God's admonition to David is still the admonition today. I dwell in the midst of the people. In fact, Jesus got even more specific and said, I go so that the Spirit might come and not only be with you, but in you. We are God's temple, God's house. 
And over and over again in Scripture, it says that God's house shall be known as a house of prayer. We are talking this month about what it means to step into prayer. Uh, about a year ago, I put a number of resources on our website from a series we had done that had a variety of different topics. Um, one had to do with uh, um, discipleship and the kingdom of God and some sources and books that could be read. One of the topics that we covered was prayer. And under resources, I wrote the sentence, I'm not going to recommend any more books for you. There are some great books on prayer. There are some amazing authors of prayer. But what sets them apart as great authors about prayer is that they lived a life of prayer. And so after saying that, I said, so don't read another book, just pray. And that's my admonition to you this week and this month. Pray. I'm not prohibiting you from reading a book on prayer. It's fine if you want to do that, but don't use that as an excuse not to pray. Last week, we talked about righteousness being first and foremost about relationship. This month, let prayer take you into relationship. And in relationship, wouldn't it be amazing if you captured the image of Haggai and said, oh Lord, what is there about this temple, me, that needs rebuilding? What's crumbled rocks? Where are the places where somebody's taken a sledgehammer and left big gashes and a mess? Is my heart an appropriate dwelling place for God's spirit? Have I rebuilt the temple? My challenge to you as it is to me, what is there about me that God, with God's help, will help me Rebuild. So it is an appropriate dwelling place for God's spirit. Because that's what God desires. And if each one of us would take it upon ourselves to expose every room, every closet, every hole in the wall, every corner that needs repaired, every carpet that needs replaced in our lives, oh God, help us rebuild, give us the strength you provide the gold, you provide the silver. Make this place a dwelling place fit for you, a king. If each one of us did that so that God's spirit might fill us up, what an amazing community of faith this would be that I get to come in and rub shoulders and walk alongside of people in whom the spirit of God is dwelling. What would it be like if we left this place and allowed God's Spirit to go with us into all of the locations where we live and work? That's what Haggai is calling us to. It is to be people who have not let the under-construction process go dormant, but instead will submit ourselves through prayer, through godly conversation through the wisdom of others, through scripture, to let our lives be exposed and to rebuild. Rebuild with God's agenda, God's purpose, God's priorities, God's design. Wow, now that's a challenge. That's also 
an amazing hope. I invite you on the journey with me. Father in heaven, as the band comes up, as we sing a closing song, Lord, I invite all of us under your watchful care this morning, Lord, to either make where we are seated our own personal altar or to come up to these altars that are up here, or if we'd like to pray with someone to go to the prayer area that's in the corner of this facility, but that every one of us, Lord, would be willing to confess the ways in which your dwelling place is still a crumbled mess. <laughs> Closets that haven't been opened in a long time. Boxes that contain pain and hurt and past experiences that we tucked away never wanting anyone to see again. Particularly you, God. Attics and garages and basements that haven't seen the light of day, haven't seen your light in such a long period of time. Father, it's time to rebuild. It's time to discard. It's time to take some of those rubble places and dig in. Give our time, our attention to that which you've entrusted to us, our heart, our lives, our choices, our finances, our time, our talents, our attitudes, our relationships. Father, there is a time for self-examination. Call us to that place this morning. Help us to be honest in our confession. truthful in our evaluation, knowing that we can't do this apart from you and your grace. Lord, I pause that your spirit might lead us into those places where we need to begin repairing the walls, restoring the floors, confessing to you your promise Lord is that what's coming in us is bigger and better is greater than anything of the former in fact your scripture says it's beyond anything we could ever imagine Lord, this place, our hearts, your temple, your house, we are looking forward to what you are creating. May it be better than we could have ever imagined. Bring back our hope, our determination, our focus on your agenda. Whew. Thank you, Lord. We praise your wonderful name. Amen.